Welcome to the Cookery by the Book podcast with me, Susie Chase. I'm Paul Friedman. I teach at Yale University in the History Department, and my latest book is entitled 10 Restaurants That Changed America. How did you come up with this diverse list of 10 restaurants? I wanted to have restaurants that were influential, not the 10 best restaurants, you know, the restaurants that serve the best food ever in America, but 10 influential or exemplary. So influential meaning that the way we eat now can be traced to influences that these restaurants encouraged. So, for example, Chez Panisse, the latest chronologically of my restaurants, is... uh, responsible, along with some others, for the farm-to-table, local ingredients, seasonal dining that is uh, the dominant pattern of restaurants today. Delmonico's in New York, the first chronologically of my ten, uh, established a standard of fine dining, French, but with American ingredients that prevailed throughout the 19th century. Then I've got Examples of certain kinds of things, For you can't write a history of American restaurants without a Chinese restaurant, in this case the Mandarin that was in San Francisco. Uh, you can't write a history of American cuisine without considering uh, giving a big place to African American uh, origins of a lot of what we eat. So the restaurant Sylvia's in Harlem is uh, an example of that. In the introduction, Danny Meyer wrote how 10 restaurants reveals how the most successful and influential types of restaurants are always rooted in some particular time and place. Talk a bit about societal trends. Yes, well, that was really my interest, was in how the way people eat shows who they are and how they want to be perceived. So certainly in some of these restaurants, for some of these restaurants, social position, high social position was important, and the restaurant was kind of a marker of status. That would be true for Delmonico's in the 19th century, Le Pavillon, a French restaurant in New York in the mid-20th century, the Four Seasons in the mid and late 20th century also in New York. But um, I was also interested in things like how restaurants present themselves to potentially new customers. Schraft's, a small chain of middle-class restaurants in New York, succeeded by appealing to women who were not necessarily being accompanied by men. In other words, women who were alone or shopping or in groups. Uh, They worked at the same place or they were shopping together and it presented them with the kind of food they were thought to like and in an atmosphere that was friendly to women. Um, Howard Johnson's is Mm -hmm. another example, a restaurant appealing to middle-class people, appealing to people with children, traveling often, uh, people traveling on the road. So the way that restaurants position themselves socially was uh, different, exemplified different times, and was a crucial aspect of this project. In an interview last year, Jacques Pepin told me that he came to Le Pavillon in 59 to work for Pierre Frenet. Then they both left to work for Howard Johnson's. Two French guys. 
What was their influence on the middle-class restaurant chain? Well, they worked for Howard Johnson, having left Pavillon in disgust because of the uh, dictatorial ways of the owner of Le Pavillon, Henri Soulet. They liked Howard Johnson partly because it was a good job, uh, had regular hours, uh, paid well, had a lot of things that chefs don't ordinarily get. But they also improved the food of Howard Johnson's, uh, putting butter instead of margarine, having the vegetables cut up at the restaurants instead of being cut up at a central commissary and then frozen. So obviously they weren't serving the kind of food that they had served at Le Pavillon, anywhere near it. But within the category of mass market, middle class, roadside food, they made Howard Johnson's uh, excellent. And when they left and when Howard Johnson started being more interested in cost cutting, people noticed. Game, terrapin, pig's feet, organ meat, French sauces, etc. Why do you think these ingredients have fallen out of favor on restaurant menus? Well, one reason is just depletion of species. So while we actually have lots of game in terms of things like deer and could serve it uh, every day at hundreds of restaurants without any kind of ecological damage, uh, things like terrapin or canvasback ducks, various kind of wild ducks, uh, prairie uh, chickens, uh, prairie hens rather, are are just not, um, they're either extinct like passenger pigeons or they're endangered and uh, not really marketable. The other reason is just changes in taste. I'm not sure why organ meats have fallen out of fashion, but that's a long-term trend. Even my most food-sophisticated undergraduate students, the idea of pig's feet or of uh, even chicken liver um, uh, makes them nervous. Do you think modern restaurants, let's say like the ones in the Michelin Guide, have better menus these days because they're focusing on taste and not prestige? Yes, I think that the standards of prestige in food have become oriented towards taste and taste based on things like seasonality or the intrinsic quality of the ingredients rather than on how exotic is this? How far did I have to fly this Dover sole in order to serve it? Or uh, where does this caviar in a tin come from? When I was little, I was convinced that rice was from San Francisco. American cuisine, is it, is it a real thing or is it just McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken? I think it's a real thing, but it's not a very flourishing real thing or hasn't been until maybe recently. The major influences on American cuisine are things like rice-a-roni, an industrial product, uh, standardization of products, things that come in cans or are frozen or that you can get exactly the same coast-to-coast and like Oreo cookies or McDonald's hamburgers. Uh, Behind that, there are some other influences American regional food, which survives in places like Louisiana and is being revived in a lot of the South, and um, diversity. So the international kinds of possibilities of restaurants, what has been called ethnic restaurants, is unusual in America and offers a lot of interesting promises. Uh, I've just been in Oxford, Mississippi, where I ate at a restaurant that has southern food, local ingredients, 
but the chef is uh, uh, has put in a number of Indian touches. He's originally his family's from India, and so uh, dal hush puppies uh, served with um, catfish, uh, unbelievably good and spiced in an Indian manner. So that's to me that's sort of American cuisine and crossover at its best. Your deep dive into the history of food at the beginning of this book is fascinating. Now, when did the idea of a restaurant as we know it get started? You would think that restaurants were always around or synonymous with urban civilization. But in fact, although takeout and places to pick up food outside the house have always been with us, restaurants as a destination, as a social place, to uh, hang out where you eat with the people you came in with, choose the time when you want to dine, and above all, choose from a menu. These are only uh, developed in the 18th century and in France and only brought to the U.S. in the early 19th century. So the restaurant is a kind of uh, way of eating outside the home, but also a destination in itself. Oscar Wilde wrote the two most impressive sites in the U.S. were Delmonico's and Yosemite Valley. Talk a little bit about the influence Delmonico's had in New York and the United States. Now, of course, I think Oscar Wilde's being humorous there, but it's uh, uh, humorous with a point. He loved Delmonico's, and it's not as if he didn't have access to interesting places to dine out in London. So Delmonico's really had an international reputation and set the standard for elegance in the entire 19th century in the United States. Standard for elegance meaning a kind of service, a gracious atmosphere, a combination of friendliness and formality, but also a very high standard of food. The food that they served was French-inspired. The menu was usually in French, but they perfected not only American prestige ingredients like canvasback ducks or the terrapin we've been talking about. They also invented some dishes like lobster Newburgh or baked Alaska that became identified with the restaurant. So really only beginning around 1900 was Delmonico's supremacy challenged by restaurants that were a little less formal, more bubbly, kind of more fun, and then by just the proliferation of other kinds of restaurants that were not quite as old-fashioned. And at that point, Delmonico started to be perceived as a little bit over the hill. It was interesting to me to see that the Delmonico brothers were Italian. So I was wondering in my head, why didn't they just go with Italian cuisine? Why... French. Because French cuisine was the standard of prestige, not only in France or the United States, but around the world. So in the 19th and early 20th centuries, and even up until the 1980s, the most prestigious restaurant in almost any city, be it Tokyo or New York, would be a French restaurant. It wasn't that French cuisine was like an ethnic cuisine among many. It was the standard. And when the Delmonicos came to New York in the 1820s, uh, nobody knew anything about Italian food, and it was just regarded as the food of peasants if they did know anything about it. On Saturday night, I made Schraff's Chicken a la King recipe on page 440. You wrote, invented in 1900, this dish was considered dainty, and elegant. And that made me laugh because it calls for a whole stick of butter. 
ideas of dainty or particularly ideas of light food have changed <laughs> so that uh, buttery is considered light uh, as opposed to something that is larded or uh, with a heavy kind of flavored strong flavored sauce like a wine sauce of some sort. So my grandmother, who used to take me to Schrafts in the 1960s when I was a kid, would have considered her cottage cheese with um, fruit or some sort of macaroni and cheese dish light because <laughs> it's not really meaty. Uh, and then she'd follow it up with an ice cream sundae because now she'd been so abstemious with the main course. <laughs> so, yeah, standards definitely change. You don't see many dishes today that are served on toast. That took me back. I, I, I think that's too bad. I, I love dishes served on toast. I do too. But yes, um, uh, the lobster Newburgh in some places came with toast. Toast is great at, at absorbing various things, <laughs> and uh, it's great as a kind of canapé. Item, I, I think it's ready for a revival, and any contribution you, uh, you can make to that would be great. I'm on it. <laughs> great. Where can we find you on the web? Uh, I am at the Yale University History Department website, and uh, then, you know, random kinds of uh, uh, hits. I don't have a web page that I really uh, am maintaining myself, but uh, that's a project that I'm trying to work on. I could talk to you for hours about this book. Thank you, Paul, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.